I'm Michael Sean Harris, and you're listening to Mike's Moment Of, a weekly podcast in which I, along with my guests, share our various interests in moments of inspiration, truth, life, technology, culture, and more. I hope you're entertained and informed, and that you feel inspired to join me again and again in my Moments Of. again another episode of Mike's Moment Of and today I'm speaking with Alvin Campbell who is a songwriter and uh, administrative manager of Fab Five. What else Alvin? What else? I think I know you do a whole lot of things. I do script writing, I've written books, I've written speeches and plays and all kind of stuff but I really love entertainment um, in particular music. And I like, I like facts and figures. I like doing research. <laughs> right, right. The research thing that, and that is, that is part of the reason we're talking to you today. Is the research thing, because you have lots of stories and um, background information on things that have happened in the music industry, in the recording industry, um, mm-hmm. but show business generally in in right. Jamaica, don't it? Yeah, man. So, no, that's true. Um, what I can do is I can start by just giving my version, you know, there are as many versions as people of, of the development of Jamaican music, which touches on other stuff too, right? Okay. Um, okay. So the first thing would be that, of course, the first, the first versions of popular music in Jamaica um, that were Jamaican was meant to Right. right, and mentor, mentor really came out of the whole slave tradition, um, but it officially would have started just after emancipation. It, it, it was that minstrel set, you know, those people used to go around and entertain um, for pittance, right? Okay. Um, and right. that was their popular music. It was kind of first cousin to the work song. Um, okay. And tended to be a little bit naughty most of the time. <laughs> right? okay, okay, and, okay. and that music, which was, if you keep me like a party, a birthday party, or, you know, you have a christening or whatever it may be, you get a little mentor group to come and play, you know. You have a nine-night, you know, you have a mentor group. Later that became what we now call Dr. Bands, but back in okay. that time was mentor groups. Um, so they were the popular entertainers of the day. And this is this is pre electronic era. Right. And then it came into the twentieth century. And they were still the most popular entertainers in one sense. Because now it split into two eras. You had the people who were doing what I'd call a professional entertainment. And this came out of the whole growth of the tourism industry. So they were working in hotels, they were working in restaurants, um, mainly mainly those two. And some of these people were trained musicians. In other words, they had learned music 
um, they could read a score, whatever it may be, and they worked um, on musicals uh, in theater and okay. this kind of thing because at that point now, you had people like, a little later, but that people like Noel Coward and thing who were coming to Jamaica and they were using Jamaica as like their off-off Broadway, but it was off-off in a West End. So right. they'd come to Jamaica and put their shows on at the World Theatre or, or theatres that predated the world. Okay. And the expatriate British community would come and watch the musical or whatever it may be. And they, however they would respond would inform the, the composer, the writer, um, what worked and what didn't work. And then they okay. would fix that and take it to London and put it down in London. So okay. we were the sounding board in Jamaica for a lot of these productions. As a matter right. of fact, John Wilkes Booth, who of course is famous for shooting Abraham Lincoln, um, reportedly his last theater engagement before the assassination was in Jamaica at the Royal. Oh, wow. You know, no, this is kind of a little strange because Whereas what I'm telling you is accurate. Um, what happens is that we don't really know if he came here to perform. We know that he performed, but we don't know if he came here to perform. And by the okay. way, when I say at the world, it, there wasn't a world theater at that time, but it was the same property. And there oh, was I a see. theater okay. before okay. the modern world was built. Okay. Um, but what happened is that a lot of the, the dissident um, Americans, um, the, the, the Southerners who, who, who were fighting to keep the Sultan, um, they would come to Jamaica to keep their, their little meetings where it was quite safe and secret. Uh, really? And they didn't have to worry about being spied on by Lincoln or, or, or the Northern forces. So they actually had several of these clandestine meetings in Jamaica, right? Um, which is very interesting. So he may actually have been there for that purpose rather than to come and perform. But he did perform, went back up and then shot Lincoln. Just, okay. You know, one of those strange but true facts. What, 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 I mean, when you say perform, what was, he, he was an actor? He was, he was a yeah, musician? Man. Was yeah, man. John Spook was a, was a well-known actor. Big okay, actor. okay. So he, he performed. It might I'd never heard of, of that, of those meetings being of people, of, you know, the, the, the Confederates coming to Jamaica. Yeah, man, to it, was quite, it, was, it was quite common. It wasn't Jamaica alone, you know. They did similar things in, I think, the Bahamas. Um, okay. But Jamaica was a quite common place for them to come and do this. Um, and then, no, what happened is that, of course, when you came into the 20th century, um, you had these two set of musicians, you know, the mentor musicians who were the, the popular people with the populist, you know, they, they were the ones that the, the average man on the street was listening to and cheering for. They were the vibes cartel of the day, right? And then <laughs> <Okay>. you had, <laughs> you had the, the more professional musicians who would work at Myrtle Bank and, you know, hotels and, and in high, high class restaurants and that kind of okay. thing. Mm. And a lot of those people got actual training in music. And 
there was kind of a divide between the two groups because the professional musicians earn quite well but never never get a big up from from the general public. Right. And the mentor people got all the big up from the general public. Um so you know there was some not animosity but they never love each other. Oh okay. and then to okay. make it worse the mental musicians when it came into the recording era other things created even more tension between the two groups okay question mm-hmm, go ahead okay so with the mental because i know that a lot of the mental songs and the the, mm-hmm. the styles the figures are coming mm-hmm. from the from the quadrille as well coming, and, yeah, exactly and exactly. you had two different styles of quadrille as well so you had the camp exactly. style and you had the more exactly you're perfectly correct because of course mental in a sense was in in one sense was an imitation of the western music that the slaves saw and got introduced to so you know they, they heard it ballroom items and thing and they saw the dances and and out of that we created our own versions which also owed to our african heritage um and then of course in terms of the melodic content and thing a lot of that was was more what they brought with us from Africa rather than what we got from 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 England or Scotland or wherever it may be in the west um okay. so all this was going along fine and then of course the electronic era came along and a lot of people um don't date that era in Jamaica back far enough um in 1935 Mm-hmm. Stanley Water already had um, established their store where they were selling radios and records. This is, this is the same store on, on Halfway Tree Road? On no, the- this was at 5 Church Street. Okay, okay. Right? Um, so they were selling records and radios from as far back as 1935, which predates okay. radio in Jamaica. There was no radio in Jamaica at the time, so anything you were listening to would have been a transmission from Florida or the Bahamas or somewhere else. Right? Okay, like okay. The Bahamas, I don't think, had radio at that time. So it would have been Florida that you'd be listening to, or maybe okay. Cuba, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting because Cuba, of course, would have explained why we knew so, so much about the Latin music of the time. Um, because you wouldn't have expected it generally. You know, we being English speaking and right. most of that music would have been in Spanish. Um, right. so nineteen thirty five. But also mm-hmm. we 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 ended up use, having that same similar clave in the mentor, which is in the Cuban. Exactly. Music. Exactly. So what happened is as as data sets were very um, expensive at that time. And I'm right. talking about a regular radio, expensive. Um, and worse, record players were horrendously expensive, you know, mm-hmm. because we're talking about the good old um, voice of his master days, you know, big funnel. RCA, yes, yes. Right, RCA, Victor. Um, and those were expensive machines. So right. only a few people really could afford those machines. So the whole record thing wasn't a major thing at the time. It was a niche market. Um, okay. But in 1950, 
Sandy Morton decided that there was enough need for them to, to, to establish a commercial recording studio. And they did this in September 1950. Um, there were ads in the, in the cleaner and thing indicating that, you know, that service was now available. And the, the turnover was quite big because what happened at that time, there was no cutting plant in Jamaica, so we couldn't press records here. The rec recordings were straight to this. So okay. when you did a recording, you know, there's no editing or nothing, straight to this. If the okay. bass man too loud, we might have to step back. Right? Right. If the trumpet too soft, we might have to come closer. Um, and it was natural balance all the way. One microphone for the entire group. Band, singer, backup singer, percussion, <laughs> everybody. Right? Um, and then that recording would go straight to this. That this now would be sent to England or on a few occasions, Florida, but mainly England, sent to England where they would make a stamper from that disc. And then from that stamper, they would press records, mainly right. 78 initially, and then later on, Paul Files. And then they would send some of that product back to Jamaica. Not a lot, because the, the, the market here wasn't particularly big. Um, as a result of that, if you want to find the early mentor recordings, most of those discs are in the UK. They're not in Jamaica. Because there okay. were a few copies that were re-imported back to Jamaica, even though right. the song was recorded here. So the very first recording was done in 1950 on the Stanley Motor label, and that would have been Lord Fly. Um, the two big mentor artists of the, of, the, of the day at that time would have been Lord Fly and Lord Flea, you know, the right. You know, it was all Lords and Jukes and Counts, and <laughs> yeah, that, was, yes. that was a slap. So, what were the so, what were the songs? What were the name? You know, you know, names of the songs. Man. It, it was a, a medley, but they started okay. with and the Soldier Man. Right? And that was so Lord, that was Lord Flea. Lord, Lord Fly, Fly, Lord, Lord Fly. Flea. Okay. Okay. The, the thing is, those were the two who used to draw massive crowds. They used to perform at like the world. They used to perform all over Kingston and 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 in the country also, and get massive crowds, right? Because they were the, they were the big pop artists of the day, <laughs> as far okay. as the American public was concerned. The difference was that in 1950, Lord Fly would have been close. Probably 48, 49, because he was okay. born just after the turn of the century. Lord Flea would have been probably about 15 or 16. Lord Flea was a little boy. <laughs> right? Okay, okay. The interesting thing about Lord Flea is that he became, in a sense, Jamaica's first superstar um, musician. Um, really? Because yeah, because what happened is that he went to the uh, to America and he appeared in about four movies. Okay. He migrated to the US, um, performed in about four movies, and these were pretty big movies. What year know? was this? What years? What this what would, this would have been in about nineteen probably fifty four, fifty five. 
that he might okay. get right um, and, and so his but his role so so i i mean i I'm have to ask these questions was he was he mixed race or was he because i mean with the united states uh, what roles was he playing in those movies no man he, like i said he 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 played himself oh, so okay he so he was a superstar lord flea okay right okay so what happens okay. is the movie would be going on and the, the star Humphrey Bogart would go to a nightclub and performing at the nightclub was Lord Flea. Oh, okay. And they okay. would actually show the entire performance of one of his songs. Ah, so you saw okay. the whole song. And and this happened in about four movies. This okay. was this was how most of most of the black artists who appeared who were quote unquote non actors. This is how right. they got into movies um, gotcha. initially. And he did Not A Little Flea, which is, of course, quite a naughty song, <laughs> but, but also extremely popular. And did his album, Not A Little Flea. And the interesting thing about that album is that technically, in one sense, that was the first million-selling album. Because what happened was... For Jamaica or for the U.S.? Mm -hmm. The first official million-selling album was, was Harry Belafonte, Belafonte's Calypso, right? Which was recorded, oh. I think, in either 57 or 58. Okay. Um, Harry Belafonte had, I think, two albums named Calypso, um, that early one and a later one. But Lord Flea's album, Not a Little Flea, ended up selling a million copies by about 1965. So it took like 10 years to reach a million copies. Whereas okay. Harry Belafonte sold a million like within three or four months. So okay. Harry Belafonte was the first to reach a million. But Lord Flea's Not a Little Flea actually was recorded before and predates the Harry Belafonte recorded. Okay, I see. So, so in okay. a sense, he can claim to be the first. <laughs> to do a million-selling album. Not to sell a million, but to create a million-selling album. Right. And First recorded million-selling album. Yeah. Mm -hmm. People have to understand that Harry Belafonte's album was not the first million-selling album by a Jamaican. You know? It was the first million-selling album in the history of music. No album had sold a million before that. Is that which right? Is why it is Mm -hmm. Which is why to this day, Harry Belafonte is, is so massive. Right. He right. created the million selling album. <laughs> the first to do it. Right. right. Um, Lord Flea, unfortunately, died very young. You know, just because he was poised to, you know, to be Harry Belafonte before Harry Belafonte. Mm. But, but he died. I think he had something like um, asthma, diabetes, or some chronic okay. disease. And, okay. and, and he died from that at a very early, young age. Um, in the meantime, back in Jamaica, you had all of these um, professional musicians who wanted to record. The problem was recordings were not cheap. I mean, the studio itself wasn't that expensive. But then to send the disc now to England or, or Florida, which is the closest place, to get the stamper made 
um, get the thing mastered and send and make copies and send back to Jamaica was quite an expensive proposition. Yeah. So yeah. the average musician never had that kind of money to, to do something like that. It had to go through a producer. And the producers of the day were only interested in the mental music because there was a market in the UK for mental. So they knew right, that when okay. they do their recording, send it to the UK. You know, they could sell a couple thousand copies or whatever they sent up there without any issue. So this so market it, in the UK was, was a diaspora or was it... It the, was a the diaspora, British? but it, it okay. quickly spread out from that. You know, okay. it didn't spread out that far as CAP would spread later. But right. but it was more than just a diaspora. Um, but, but but then Scott also struck a card with the with the quote unquote skinheads who at the exactly. time weren't racist. You know, it wasn't that exactly. racist. Exactly, exactly. Right, right. I was going to come to that. You know, okay, and of okay. course they have their 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 own their own, their own name for Scott, Blue Beat. Um, okay. Which was mainly because a lot of those Scott recordings were put on the Blue Beat label in the, U, in the UK, which is okay. why the name Blue Beat came up. So okay. Up until, I'd have said, 57, 56, 57, it was mainly mental recordings that were being done here. And then around that time, we started to do some of the, what you'd call the Jamaican soul music, for want of a better term. So, you know, you had people like Jivin Juniors, which was Derek Harriet, um, and others coming in, you know, and doing their versions of the R&D music. So the okay. music was becoming quite popular because of the development of the sound systems, right? Which right. is another story that was so comfortable. <laughs> um, so the R&B, R&B sound was being replicated, but with our Jamaican twist out here in Jamaica. Um, and you had all these groups and individuals coming up, you know. You had people like, like, like Alton Ellis doing Muriel, and you know, <laughs> you had a right. lot of slow tunes being done at that time in Jamaica, um, right. rhythm and blues style. And then you had the boogie woogie type of tunes, like the easy snapping type of, you know, as I said, snapping, not snapping. Yeah, but yes, yes, yes. <laughs> That's a pronunciation on the record. Snapping. So you know, the easy snapping kind of thing, which, 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 which owed a lot. To that um, boogie woogie southern so black American black American song because you know the, the big songs in America at the time the jump blues you had all of these various things you know they had the versions of R and B because right. what we call R and B you know didn't come into fullness until like the start of the sixties so okay. it, all the precursors. To that, which, which was, you know, depending on the tempo and the style and if it came from the south or the north of America, would probably have a different group name. So in other right. words, you know, that was Boogie Woogie, that was Jump Blues, you know, that was mm. r that was Southern Soul, that was whatever it might be. Okay. So okay. that started to become more predominant just about the end of the 50s. Um, 59, 60, you know, and then at that point, no, the ska was developed. Don't so ask ska, me, mm, so ska for me, I mean, so because you, you spoke about boogie woogie, 
Uh, but I, right. I hear I hear a, a relation with Boogie Woogie and Ska. Definitely. I mean, Definitely. It sounds like, you know, you know a, a Jamaican version of Boogie Woogie. Exactly. And a lot of people have tried to define in musical terms what that relationship is. And some people say Ska is backwards, Boogie Woogie. <laughs> emphasis, <laughs> emphasis on the other beats. <laughs> right? right. Which, which is how we come to Ska. Um, and that's reasonable, but I leave that to, to more technically adept musicians like yourself, people right. who know the music into the depths. Um, so the ska started, and I know a lot of people, when they think about ska, they think in terms of the instrumental side of ska. You know, the scatolites, all of that, of the instrumental musicians, because gotcha. there was a lot of instrumental ska. Right. But the instrumental ska did not, and certainly not in Jamaica, dominate ska. Ska was dominated by the singers. Okay. Um, because what happened is, for instance, people don't realize that the scatolites, the heyday of the scatolites and all of their original iconic recordings was one and a half years. One and a half years. That's a they, short time. <laughs> very short time. Um, they were recording in the studio for other people, you know, at Coxon um, Studio One um, and other studios. Um, but as a group, even though the core members might have performed under various names at various studios, but mainly Coxon um, for some time, the Scatterlight itself as a brand and as a band only existed initially for about a year and a half. This is would be 62, 63. And then, you know, they split up. And people oh. went back. Roland Alfonso had his Supersonics. And you know, other members of the, of the group had their own own bands. You know, some people were working in studio bands. So it was very short-lived. You know, very creative. And the output was fantastic. But very short-lived. And of course... You know, the fact that Don Drummond, um, you know, had had his issues, ended mm-hmm. up at, at, at Bellevue and all the rest of it, made the whole, you know, that was part of the whole dissolution of the, of the, of Scatterlights. And okay. nobody jumped into that opening to continue the dominance of any kind of instrumental scat in Jamaica. Although, a lot of it was done in the UK and Europe. I know ska is all over the world. I mean, right. slightly different versions of ska, but it's mm-hmm. all over the world. We have, I've read that article that suggests that there are more ska bands than any other type of pop band in the world because there so, are so many ska, ska groups. I don't know actually what that is. I have a question for you. Um, so... Because, I mean, we started this ska thing and yeah, the, the Scatalyze was a year and a half, but there are other groups and, you know, other, other people doing things. But well, how, how, mm. how, how do you figure that we kind of, because it seems like right now we've kind of just given up on ska, Jamaica, you know, but it's, mm. it's thriving everywhere else. I mean, how do you account for that? But I, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I think what happened is that in Jamaica, we tend to associate music with a time period and a culture. So in other words, okay. for us, ska is skin, um, skin foot pants, right? 
um, um, and and the the polyester shirt and okay. everybody wearing black because you know if you are a bad boy you wear black <laughs> so everybody okay. wearing black you know and you have you have your, your black hat and all this that was this scat culture and if you listen to the scat thing they talk sing a lot about rude boys and you right, know, right. People on the street people who are in conflict with the police. Sounds and like a gangster, kind of gangster, gangster era. Exactly, exactly. That's what it was. Okay. And then what happened now? The, the main producers of Ska at the time were Tyler the Coxon. Um, and they were the ones who became most associated with Ska. was Prince, Prince Buster, right? And, and, um, what's his name? Um, I still remember. Um, shoot. Queen Africa's father. Uh, um, hold on. I, I, I remember and tell you. Um, okay. Which, ironically, Prince Buster used to produce him. But okay. they created this, you know, this dance hall clash, which was all fake, right? <laughs> Where the two of, them, two of them were in conflict with each other. And they had big hits, you know. Um, there was Blackhead Shiny, um, which okay. was a reference to Prince Foster, um, because of his mixed race heritage. Okay. okay right? Okay. So he was the Blackhead Shiny, but he that wrote very, all his songs. And, and very, therefore, um, very politically incorrect at this point in, in this day and age. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but he was the one who was writing that song giving it to the other artists who would sing it, and then he would reply. So one of his big hits, you know, he's singing, you said it, I am a blackhead shiny. <laughs> right. Okay. So um, Derek Morgan is, is Africa's Morgan, That's what I was trying to remember. So it was, it was those two, which was Prince Buster and Derek Morgan, and they were particularly important because they, their records took off big time in the UK. Which created okay. a market for ska in the UK um, that allowed now what I was calling before the professional musicians to get their break. Because they were okay. the ones who were playing the tracks for these artists, it's not the mentor guys. Right. <laughs> you know, these were the professional trained musicians who were playing. And at the same time, while all that was going on, even though Prince Boston and Derek Morgan were the were the, the dance of Ska. They were the biggest hit maker. The biggest hit maker in Ska was Tootsie Bird. Tootsie really? Bird had a ton of Ska hits. I mean, I think he had something like 15 or 16 Ska number one hits. Right? He just used to churn them out like every week. He just churned <laughs> another one, churned another one. You know? And then he had people like the Whalers who had nice time and wings of a dog and that kind of right. thing. So, so a lot of the artists of that era were doing ska and were being successful with ska, right? Um, and the, 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 before I go past ska, I want to get into the to, to how a lot of this thing developed in terms of like the dance hall, not dance hall okay. music as we define it now, but mm -hmm. the dance hall. But what happened was, back in the 40s into the early 50s, you had all of these 
kind of haberdashery places downtown Kingston, where yeah. you know they would sell pants lengths and you know um, curtains and oil lanterns and whatever it may be. And what the guys found is that if you wanted people to come into your store, one way to attract the people and bring them into your store was using music. So they would get somebody to come and play some music. Because remember, this wasn't the era when you didn't have the option of, of tape. Tape, right, tape right. would have been real to real tape that was expensive. And then for okay. you to, to go to the whole trouble of putting together a real recording, a real time consuming and all the rest of it. So the guys would get the records and they have a turntable and they would play the music. And then you would have what they, they call a toaster. And the toaster would say, you know, come eat a Michael Harris's haberdashery, you know. You know, we have right. khaki and seal, you know. Get the best handkerchiefs, blah, blah, blah. And then the music come up again. Right. right? And what they would do is push the speaker box onto the sidewalk outside the door at the store. To attract so, people. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. And this became the impetus for a lot of people to start their sound systems. <laughs> okay, and okay. When they started the sound systems now, which really started in the 40s in, in Jamaica, when they started the sound systems, it led to other things in a very logical way. Okay, because what happens is, first of all, the original sound systems had one turntable. One turntable. No, 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 mixing this and two turntables. One turntable. So when you played a record and you're going to play the next record, there was inevitably going to be dead ear between one record and the next. No matter right. how fast you are, you know, to take off the record, put on the other one, put back the stylus on, on, the, on the record, took time. So after a while, they realized that this dead ear was a waste. So they brought in the toasters into the dance hall. And what the toasters would do in that space was advertise the next show, you know. So right. Duke Alvin's right. Hi-Fi is going to be at Beeston Street, 28 Beeston Street, you know, next Saturday, you know. Come out and, and enjoy the food and blah, 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 blah. Um, and this was really the start of the DJ in Jamaica. Okay, all right, before you get to the DJ, I want I want some some context to just to say just to kind of get a, an, an idea of who the people were who were who the players in a sense, but mm-hmm. uh, and it's not the not the upfront players. So with the haberdashers and stuff, who right. who were the people who owned and and ran these haberdashers? Were they black? Were they Indian? Were they um, Middle Eastern? Were they Chinese? Yeah. Um, what yeah. all they of were, the above? They were a mixture. They were a mixture okay. of people. You had all of those that you named, Lebanese, um, you had Chinese, you had a total mixture. But the ones who created this whole dance hall thing were mainly black or, or mixed race. So in other okay. words, it's the same people who later became famous as sound system operators and then as studio operators. So in you know, the Duke Reeds, you know, the cocks and dads, it's these same people. They usually it started with the father or whatever. In other words, the father owned a haberdashery. And okay. and they were the ones you now who got involved in playing the music 
and all the rest of it. I realized and that the, look and, and and funding it too, funding the, the equipment. Exactly. This is a business opportunity. Um and therefore they would set up um systems with their contacts who live like in the US or whatever, so that they would send down records for them on a regular basis. And when I say regular, I mean sometimes you're getting a record six months a year behind when it was released in the US. You know, right. the, the, some 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 songs who that hit on the Jamaican charts in nineteen sixty were released in fifty seven in the States. So so, you know, but, so I mean So so with the with the shipping though, because I mean the haberdashery again is tied into shipping goods and exactly, stuff. Exactly. Country, so that's that's how that would work. Because um, they already had to ship in their goods. Something came to me you now because of that. Because uh, I, I mean, I've watched some documentaries on the recording industry, even in the in the US, what the recording right. industry is. Mm -hmm. And really, it is not up really about music. It's about selling services, selling other products. Exactly. Is what is what is the music that can work with the other products? And it seemed like this was the same thing going on there. Perfectly correct. And and the music was really a tool. It was a tool to sell the other things. Which right. were which was where the big profit was, right? Um, because this all of this kind of predated to an extent the jukebox, which was crucial right. to the development of music in Jamaica, and the oh, jukebox okay. really only became popular in I'd say the second half of the fifties. Then it really took off in the sixties, and it it ruled in the seventies, right? Because the jukebox was everywhere, well, ubiquitous. I mean, there was a jukebox in every bar, you know, a little restaurant, everywhere. And they would change the offer in the jukebox quite regularly. So what okay. you would find is that there were some songs that would stay in the jukebox for 10 years, you know, <laughs> maybe wow, a Jim okay. Reeves or something. Yes, yes, of course. Maybe in the jukebox for 10 years. But then yeah. you had other songs that were the hit at the time that would come into the jukebox and spend two, three months in the jukebox and then be replaced okay, by whatever is now climbing the charts. Right, but, you know, right. this was slightly later. Um, so the sound systems now, the development of the sound system, like I said, they realized that if you had a toaster there, and the toaster was talking, the dead ear could be killed. Uh, so that was one thing which led to the development of the whole DJ culture, you know, right. and started people like Kingstit and Machuki and people like that uh, very early. Um, okay. But but at the same time, there was a technological development. What happened is, for instance, and this was a little bit later, um, the whole reverberation unit thing. Mm -hmm. Every sound system now bought a reverberation unit. This was like mid-60s, you know, maybe a little earlier. They and this was like a, a, a what? A spring reverb? What kind of reverb? Spring was it? reverb. Spring re okay. Very important that it's a spring reverb. Because right. what happened was what they found, what used to happen with the big the big sound system, like a King Tobias five minutes here. They would play in these places where you had, you know, three-story buildings and you're playing in a courtyard between buildings. Um, um, it reminds me of the story of Cool Herc later. 
right? Yeah, man. And, yeah, man. and what they will do, they will put the steel horns on the top floor, pointing down into oh. the courtyard. Right. And they would have mid-range, mid-range horns on the first floor or whatever, right? <laughs> and then on the ground okay. floor, they would have their woofers, <laughs> so right. their right. speakers are on the ground floor. So the whole and courtyard become the sound. Become the sound. Become up. And what they found was that when you played a song, and now you had a gap between one song and the other. If you drop the reverberation unit, drop that spring reverb <laughs> at the end of the song, by the time that song stopped reverberating, the next song was on and ready to play. So that's right? dub coming in. <laughs> it became a mixing technique because it yeah. was then copied in the studio. Right? And then what happened is they went a step further because they realized that if you're dropping the spring reverb, and you have your woofers and thing up. You're going to blow speakers because this is what okay. would happen. Because right. the, the crossover systems were very rudimentary if they existed at all, right? Mm -hmm. And and they were losing speakers to damage, and you keep having to recone and recall speakers. And they said, no, this can't work. So what they started to do is they took out the bass before the end of the song and then they dropped the reverb right wow. change the thing and when the next song started it started without bass because <laughs> this is how you had set it yes, and then yes, you yes. turned in the bass and they this became the, the mixing technique for what we now call dub so the dub right. started out the bass and then they ramping the bass and <laughs> that was dub I was ready right. to save the woofer, save the speaker. Exactly. <laughs> so necessity is a mother, mother of, of invention. Yes, sir. Right? And wow. then what they discovered now, when they started to play with that kind of technique in the studio, you didn't have to wait for the end of the recording or the beginning of the recording. So you could drop out the bass in the middle of the song. You know, you, you, you could have just voice alone at one point or horns alone at one point. And when they were doing this now, they realized that they were creating spaces, um, areas that were silent or semi-silent that could allow a voice to participate in the song, which wasn't there before. Because what used to happen to save money, I record a song, I record um, Windows of My Mind. And mm -hmm. on the flip side is Windows of My Mind dub because right. you already have the rhythm track, so you don't have to spend any extra money. <laughs> you, just, you just take out the voice and, and you have side B without right. spending an extra cent. But no, when you take out the voice and you have side B, you now have a track that you can bring a DJ in or a singer in to do a totally different song. Okay. So this was where the DJs started to really get their opportunity, right? Doug and the DJ and thing, one pushed the other <laughs> in the creative okay. process, right? But so, mm -hmm. go ahead. Yeah. So all right. So the the, the DJs, because I mean, there's a there's a dub music and there's a DJ, but mm -hmm. you also have dub poetry. What exactly. is the, what is the relation? Well, dub poetry, um, as far as I know. 
came much later. The poetry was okay. really, was okay. really, the poetry came out of the kind of late 70s, 80s experience. You know, the Lincoln Crazy Johnson type of thing, which right. in effect, it was a Michael, um, Michael Smith and, and Oko Onuro and all of these people who, at that point, I think the culture of the country created a space where poetry became more important. And okay. the poetic expression in the, in, in, in the grassroots was tied into the music. And in particular, okay. the dub music, because the dub music offered more of a space for them to add this creative, these, these words in, in the poetic form and, and have it mesh in a kind of really nice way. So it, it, the movement, which was going on concurrently in the UK and in Jamaica um, with the poetry, but that was like a you know late 70s, early okay. 80s kind of thing. So, and but, it was, was also a period when it wasn't just dog poets. Poetry in particular, West Indian poetry, um, uh-huh. at that point had a resurgence. And a lot okay. of people were looking at the poetry, studying the poetry. You had new poets coming up, you know, who were offering something different. Um, and a lot of these were also working like a theater. So you had people who were writing poetry, but they were also working on, on scripts for theater pieces. Um, okay. And therefore they had more than one avenue of expression, you know? Okay. And, and, and some of them also did some, some, some lyrics or songs. But, but, but as you said, the dub, was, the dub poetry was much later... Then the dub, much, so did, much later. Did, the did the dub music fade out and then we get a resurgence because of the poetry or no? No. What happened was the dub music never really faded out. What happened was the the DJs kind of left that dub feel behind at the end of the 70s. When they went okay. into the 80s and dance hall, which was far more electronical event came into being with a different, you know, a, a whole different feel. And, and it wasn't really the dub thing anymore. But, but UK took, I, took notice of the dub though. Well, and ironically, in the UK in particular, but in other places in Europe and elsewhere, the dub never ever went down. The, the okay. dub became a subculture. You know, right. which created other subcultures, house music, exactly. and yes. it, right, and there are a ton of them now. It's a talk of English people who are steeped in this area. You know, the sound system operators and things. They can probably give it 12, 13, 14 different subgenres, which right, all right. came out of dub music. And dub is still big, still big in the UK. It, it has its market that has not really diminished. Okay. Right? Um, and the thing about dub, that relationship between the music and the engineering of the music, um, many people, including a lot of the top name engineers in the United States and in the UK, credit that as the start of modern engineering techniques, Tudor engineering techniques, in 
pop music, in particular things like hip hop and all the rest of it, because right. the techniques that they developed are the techniques that are being used by the top engineers today. So, in in effect, we created a style of engineering, and and a lot of innovations in engineering, which came out of the fact that we had dub, you know, right. and we had this creative opportunity in the studio of doing so basically tough. whatever you wanted, you know. So the talk, talk more about the about those engineers, the, the ones who were who were doing the innovations and the experimentation um, well, in, in, in Jamaica. The, the, the one which is regarded as the most important of them all would be Lee Scratchberry. Right. right? And, and somebody said to me that day, if you're from a certain generation, you call him Scratch. And if you're from a younger generation, you call him Lee Perry. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. together. Lee Scratchberry, the mad scientist. Right. Yes. Um, because his innovations continue to today. He, he, if you want to listen to engineering at its peak and in terms of use of dub with engineering, you can't go better than just buying four or five albums from scratch, right? And I didn't mean buying the albums from scratch. I mean from Lee Perry. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Um, and you had a ton of crucial engineers, but the, those engineers were tied to the studios, you know? They were tied okay. to the Channel One. Um, they were tied to Duke Reed. They were tied to Studio One, um, which is Coxner, of course. And they were tied to Dynamics. And each right. of them created their own niche, their own style. That if you knew, if you knew the business inside out, you could just listen to a recording that you had never heard and identify who the engineer was. Okay. And then. In a more deep sense, the other crucial engineering team was the team that came out of the King Tobbies set. King Tobbies okay. and his recording crew, which included his chief engineer at the time, was Jamin, who okay. went on to start his own studio, Jamin's. Right? right. And then at J that Jamin's, you had a whole host of crucial young engineers and producers who created that whole 1980s dancehall dance hall song, which came mainly out of jammies. You know, it okay. was the steely, steely and cleavy thing. Yes. You know, a whole, a whole study. I mean, creative, creativity was fantastic. But the thing is, the sound of that studio fragment, say, comes mainly out of the fact that you know what the studio was. Everybody knows that if you want to sing a song good, you sing in your bathroom. That studio was a bad, is a bathroom. They <laughs> actually created the studio in the bathroom. Really? The tiles, the wall tiles, and all the rest of it, which is what gives a bathroom a sound, is yes. what gave Jamie's studio its sound. <laughs> People don't realize that, but that's that was that was intentional. That was intentional. Yeah, man, that they, was they, intentional. Okay. It, it was intentional, but at the same time, of course, it helped. That you know, that would mean that you could save some money too. But it was right. intentional because they realized that this, this this natural echo chamber, which a bathroom is, mm -hmm. <laughs> would create a certain sound. You know, 
so so that's what they did. And of okay. course, the rest is history as far as Janet is concerned because <laughs> they have the most hits in that. That's the first decade of dancehall music. You know, okay. decade, decade and a half. So, mm. you know, so, so all of that was going on. At the same time, in terms of the historical development, the crucial thing that happened in about, I think it was about 58, is that Edward Siaga started WIRL, West Indies Records Limited. West Indies Records Limited was the first place that had a pressing plant in Jamaica. It meant okay. that for the first time, you didn't have to send your music overseas to press it. So you could record, cut a stamper, and press the music right here in Jamaica. And as a result, the whole production thing just blossomed and multiplied. And I mean, that all of a sudden, there were tons of producers and, and tons of labels. The, the big label in that period was the, the Times Times Records, which was really Times Store, um, which okay, was on King okay. Street, um, yes. because they were a major distributor of, of records at yes. the time, when you know a lot of the record shops hadn't been fully established yet. People would go down to Times Store and buy the records there. So Times Store decided that it was worth their while to create <coughs> their own label and do their own recordings and distribute it. <coughs> so that's, that's what they did. And it worked out great for them. You know? okay. um, and then, of course, Siaga now, having established um, WRL, he went into politics. And when the government decided that they were going to make him a minister of culture, he realized that um, there would have been some problems um, with him being a minister of culture and also right. operating WIRL. So what he did is he sold WIRL to avoid this conflict of interest. He sold WIRL to Byron Lee for okay. what you call peppercorn money. You know, hmm. a joke money. It was just a token. Right. And Byron Lee transformed it into dynamic songs. Okay. Right? So that's how Byron became a big player in the, in the industry because he, in effect, took Siaga's investment and then stepped further with it. Um, but but, but, but mm-hmm. Siaga took but Siaga took care of Byron Lee still, don't it? I mean, well, because didn't, didn't they go to the, the, the World Fair with the sky? Well, yeah, Byron what happened went? is, as Minister of Culture, Siaga then offered opportunities to, to, to the Byron Lee. But the thing is, right. it's not even like you can say that Byron didn't deserve the opportunities. Because okay. at that point, Byron would have been not necessarily the best band in terms of its professionalism or its membership, but in terms of popularity, they were the big popular band of the era. You know, okay. they, between 1957, I think, I think their band started either 56 or 57 as a school band at St. George's High School. Um, it was running Nasrallah part of this. Running Nasrallah, yeah. And okay. they started that band and it became instantly popular. And, and they were the top, the number one band, um, the number one performing band 
and the number one recording band too in Jamaica for quite a long while, probably until you know the late late sixties, right? Byron and the Dragoners were everywhere, and this was this was way before the Carnival era, right? Um, they had a lot of hits that people in Jamaica don't remember nowadays. You know, things like dumplings that, that they performed that had anybody remember, but were big hits on the Jamaican charts and reached okay. number one. And of course, they also performed in the very first um, James Bond movie, Dr. No. Yes. If you go back and watch Dr. No, you will see Byerly and the Jaguars performing in Dr. No. Right? So, and then, of course, like you said, they went to the World's Fair. And they actually performed in about two or three of those famous beach movies um, right. that were the rage of the, of the day in America, the teeny, teeny beach movies. Yes, They yes. performed in several of those movies. Um, and even though what they were performing basically was scat, they were kind of built like cal- Calypso. Because as far as Americans were concerned, anything from the Caribbean was Calypso. So right, they made right. no distinction between between Mento and Calypso, uh, Sky is Calypso. Yeah, anything from down here is Calypso. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, I mean, I mean, why call it? Harry Belafonte's first album was Calypso, right? And there was not a Calypso song on the album. <laughs> there were several <laughs> Mento songs and folk songs, but there was no yes. Calypso song on the album. So, mm-hmm. so you know, but that's how it is. You know, later on, everything from Jamaica became reggae. And right. That's how it is. <laughs> so if you're back in Jamaican music, I don't care if the biggest, deepest classical music is reggae, the guy comes from Jamaica, <laughs> which is ridiculous. <laughs> but yes, yes. Right? Yeah. So, um, so the opportunity now for Jamaicans to record um, and really create um, their own market in Jamaica and for all of these new artists to come up and start to make a living out of the music came up at that point, which was beautiful because it was also the point where we we came to our independence. So everything was happening at the same time. The young artists were getting their chances and you had the Jimmy Cliffs and all of these people were coming up, getting their opportunity to perform. and at the same time, we were getting our independence. And you know, things like things like the National Dance Theatre Company was being created. You know, we started in '63, um, and you had just this spurt of creative creativity that that came along with with, with the whole independence thing that yeah. touched all aspects uh, of the creative arts. You know. Um, not just performing arts, but whether it, 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 it was visual art, you know, whether it's a, a capo or, or it was an Alvin Marriott who was, who was doing sculpture or whoever right. it might be. There was this burst of creative, creativity, which, you know, led to, led to icons being created. So right. you had, you had the Miss Lou's and the Ronnie Williams in theater, right? Um, and, and you had, you had all of these these other actors who were doing radio dramas and pantomime had came into its own as a more Jamaican thing 
and we own pantomime now because now it was all about Jamaica. Because pantomime had started as a replica of pantomime in the UK, um, right. which didn't really owe anything to Jamaica. But Miss Lou and others transformed pantomime into what we now recognize as pantomime, which okay. is which is a reflection of Jamaican culture and heritage. You know, so so that's that's panto <coughs> was was happening. And at the same time our sports was was taking off at various levels. You know, we had the we had the forty eight and fifty two Olympic Games where we did extremely well and won gold medals. But of mm. course performing for Britain because we were still British at that time. Right, you know? right, right. Um but the Jamaican people got a fill up out of that, and it was wonderful, and we were all shouting and cheering in the street. Who was alive at that time? And that came when I was there. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and it, it, it was just an exciting period. And then so, we came into... Mm-hmm, go ahead, Michael. So, yeah, because, I, I mean, because you're talking about this, this really, this, this wonderful period of, of creative output mm-hmm. um, um, just across the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it kind of died. When when did it kind of die down? It was was it okay. early seventies? Uh, you okay. see, what happened is that it it started around you know late fifties into the the sixties, and then what happened is that it got a further push when the JCDC was created. And that right. JCDC was created around sixty two, sixty three to. And this is CIA again, right? Further push in '66 when the festival song com- competition came on board, because the festival song competition—if you didn't live through it, you wouldn't understand at that time how important it was to us, our national image, our self-image. You know, I mean, everybody was just totally into the festival song com- competition. It was yes. the number one cultural item for the year, without question. Okay. You know, okay. and what happened is that at the same time you had all these competitions taking place in speech, in dance, you know, in theater, in all of these other creative outputs, and and all of that was being pushed by the JCDC. They were at the same time. Saving a lot of our cultural heritage, things that were in danger of disappearing because the generations who practice these dances, you know, these these religious ceremonies, whatever it might be, were were, were dying out, and, right. and and they saved it because they brought in a new set of people to learn these things, learn maple, you know, learn dinkimini, learn all of these things, and keep them alive. And if it was right. for JCDC, a lot of these things would have been dead years ago, you know. Okay. And then festival song came, like I said. So all of this was fantastic creative period, and that went through probably until about the mid seventies. And then I think what happened is that it suffered from its own success. In other words, there were so many people now. There were so many artists all of a sudden. I mean, visual artists we're talking about. There were so many sculptures. Mm. There were so many ceramicists. You know, the, any 
area of the ads that you could name was almost oversubscribed by the time okay. you reached like, you know, 1976, 77. So, so some people found that it became difficult to actually make a living out, yeah. of, out of the ads at that point. So some people dropped out and went back into other other areas, you know, go back to an accountant, uh, you know. But that kind of, that kind of felt like you know. Now that we found love, what are we gonna do with it? Because I mean, now you have all this, all these, all these brilliant, exactly. brilliant artists, and um, so there was no plan really of exactly. what to do. Want to encourage all of this stuff? Okay, you see, that was a problem. The problem was there was no direction, and one of my pet subjects that you know I don't want to beat a dead ass, but the reality is that our Oh, oh, oh. The, the area in Jamaican life which had the possibility for the biggest financial gains was Jamaican culture. Whether yes. it's music, whether it's theater, whether it's dance, whether whether, whether it's, it's styles and fashion or whatever right. it may be, there was this gaping possibility of making serious money out of all of this. And although we had people like Tiago who were steeped in the music and the culture and the traditions, although we had people like PJ Patterson, who again, you know, a former manager of the Scatterlights, you know, these people knew this thing inside out. We had people like Portia who know our culture and all the, no government ever made a serious attempt to market the Jamaican culture globally. Yes. And that was a total miss as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, because I think if thing. we had done it, we could have avoided a lot of the financial problems that we have had as a country over the years. Because we yeah, could have I, made a pile of money. Yeah, I think, they, they, I think they, they pinpointed ska and, and, and eventually reggae. And, mm-hmm. and and they're still they're still kind of misfiring where that is concerned, they're but it, it, but it's but it was limited in in my view. It's a mm-hmm. it's a limited way of looking at it because even even and I keeps I mean I, you you say it's one of your pet things, but this is one of my pet things too. Even mm-hmm. things like like Kumina and Dinky Mini and those things, you know, could, can can and still still can be packaged yeah. and and yeah. and monetized. And the people who are who are who are the, the originators or who are the, the, mm-hmm. the perpetuators. Can mm-hmm. can make a living off of it and, of and not have to suffer. Yeah. And look, you 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 go into an era now, you know, the social media era and all the rest of it that offers opportunity that never existed before. But if you go back and look at what existed before that we never take up. I spoke to several of these people. I talk in highest level, prime minister level and that kind of level. I yes. said, look, if you put together a Jamaican review, right, that would include Dance, theater, um, music, um, some maybe some comedy, um, all of these things, all of these things that we are well known for, right? You know, fashion, whatever it may be. And you put together something like that where you're using, you know, 10 to 12 artists, and you create four or five of those and send them around the world on world tours. They would be sold out every day. Absolutely. Every day. You would never have a problem marketing it. 
they would be constantly sold out. Right? And you could would have the opportunity to use established artists as well as introducing new artists and giving them an opportunity also. So yes. I mean we just missed the boat. We missed the boat. We missed the boat full stop. Where that is concerned. You know, and we're still missing the boat. And people yeah. have been talking about, you know, um why reggae gone worldwide now, so it's too late. It's never too late. It's not we too late. The right never. approach. It's never too late. Because the opportunities yeah. are still there. They're still out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's bigger. It's bigger than reggae. I mean, reggae is great. It's bigger than reggae. Great, but bigger, Much bigger, it's bigger than, than reggae. reggae. Mm-hmm. So, so to get back to kind of where we were heading. So yeah. you had all of these people who were doing ska and money was actually being made now. Um, the, the, the dance halls and the, the clubs you know, had become big sources of income. You know, you, you had you had the Sombrero Club, you had Glass Bucket, and all of these clubs that would attract a regular clientele of, you know, five, six hundred people um, paying good money. Uh, and, you know, the, the major producers, you know, you had the people like Derek Harriot, and, you know, every one of the, 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 the major studio people were also producers. So they would produce these shows. And and you'd get large turns of, turnout of, of patrons and they would make quite a bit of money. Um, right. And then it kind of moved because you had a set of people who, who would play at the downtown venues. You had a set of people who would play at kind of the, the midtown, um, halfway tree kind of venues. You had a set of people who were playing at the Mullines Road, you know, that was somewhere, somewhere was and thing, those kind of venues. And then by the 1970s, early 70s, Red Hills Road established itself as kind of the new, the new Beat Street. Because Orange Street downtown was known as the original Beat Street because okay. there were so many record shops on Orange Street. When you leave Harriet and going on, you just record shop after record shop after record shop. <laughs> right? Okay. And when it was not a record shop, um, it was something aligned to a record shop that had a jukebox inside there or whatever. So they call it Beat Street because anywhere you were on that street, you were listening to music. <laughs> music right through. And hmm. yeah, between there and King Street, King Street, upper upper King Street, King Street above, above Harriet, um, going up. Also had a lot of the record shops and things and all the rest of it. You know, and, and you had you had the Joe Gibbses and things who were in close proximity. Um, this, this was around by um, retirement crescent and those kind of places. So right. so it was it was a wide open system. And like I said, some of the, some of the things died because they died from oh, there was just too too much too much competition, but okay. not really in the music because what happened in the music you now is you know this this the same story, and and a lot of people will tell you you know boy we get ripped off by blah blah we get ripped off by, but other people will tell you I never mind cocks rip me off you know. 
because it make my name popular in Jamaica and I can go make money. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. So because what would happen? The system, the studio system became a system where what would happen is Cox and Fireson's who had a studio one. Right? Bedford Road. Coxon had a set of musicians who were his studio musicians. You know, um, it was the Roland Alphonsos and those type of people. Right. A lot of the people on the scatter life, <coughs> you know, and other people, studio musicians. <coughs> and what the system was, Michael Harris has a song. So Michael Harris come to the studio and somebody would point Michael Harris in the direction of whoever the producer of the day was. Now they sing a song. Michael Harris sing the song. Producer listen to the song. And the producer determined whether, whether he sings the song as in the Bible or not. If you don't right. like the song, he'll say, boy, you know, we don't have no use for this. If you like the song, he'll say, all right, sit down, go inside. And in some time, that's short, that's 15 minutes. They create a track. Okay. Right? Because the musicians are right there. And they're ready. Else, yeah. So they, in two tools, they create a track. And then he go back outside and say, come Michael Harris. And Michael Harris go in and then sing, a, sing the song on his track. And then he say, thank you, Michael Harris. And if there are 20 artists outside in the yard, probably 15 of them get called in to sing a song on the track. So by the end of the day, you have 16 songs on the one track. Okay. And then what okay. you do? You release the 16 songs, and if two of those songs hits, then cocks make money. Right. No, the, the other people who sing the other 14 or 15 songs don't make a cent. The two guys who sing the two that become hits don't make a cent from cocks neither. <laughs> but the song become popular, and the song is playing everywhere. So the, the promoters of shows call them in to perform and pay them. Right. So they are getting their pay from the public performance. Okay. Not from not from royalties from the song. And this was the system for years. And a lot of the artists say, I don't have a problem with it. They didn't mind getting ripped off as long as they were making money in the final analysis. Right. So that was what was but no, no, but nowadays, I mean, the, the person, the first person who went in, whose whose track, whose song, the track is based off of, should make um, should make something off everybody who make a money, including. <laughs> well, theoretically, but practically, yes. the guys don't tell you. I'm not to do with creating the track because the track created was even being in the studio. Him outside, he's outside sitting down while the track is being created. Yeah, but but it, but it's based on his song. I know it's not fair. I know it's not fair. Yeah. It's not fair. Yeah. yeah. But that's how it was. And then what happened now is that some people started to realize that, look, there's money to be made in this thing and we're not making the money because the producers are making all the money and we as artists are not making anything. So there was a kind of uprising against this control of the system by the big producers. Okay. the big producers of the day were Cox and Dodd at Studio One, Duke Reed, um, and Byron Lee at, at, at 
um, dynamic. dynamic songs, mm. right? So, you know, there was also Sonia Pottinger and there were, you know, other people, Joe Gibbs, whatever, but those were the big three. And okay. Federal had its own system, but Federal tend to be recording a different set of artists, you know, the, the Ernest Smiths and, 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 you know, Iman Barney, Peter Sherwin, right. it was mm-hmm. kind of that set that they were recording that, you know, kind of got earmarked as uptown, uptown artists, even though uh, they might not have been uptown at all. Right. Um, so the big three, as far as everybody was concerned, was Coxon, Duke Reed, and Byron. And Byron, uh, I'm sorry, the Whalers, which is what it was at the time, and mm-hmm. also at some points the Whaling Whalers, um, decided that they wanted to create their own label. So initially, um, and I'm not 100% certainly, but I've been told that they were recording at Coxon. This was in the Wings of a Dog kind of period, nice time. Right. They were recording at Coxon. And Coxon Dads, they said they wanted to create their own label. And Coxon Dads said, okay, you can create your own label. As long as I get in the records, I go press and distribute and all the rest of it. So they created Whale and Soul. Okay. And that's not whale in soul, but whale and soul. And it's just okay. in a process of it, whale and soul. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is where, of course, whale and soul got, the, got their name from, the, the group. Mm-hmm. So whale and soul was their first label. But then they decided that that wasn't good enough. They want a fully independent label, where they were record their own thing, distribute their own thing, everything is it's theirs, right? And so at that point, they created a small axe label. Okay. And the small axe label is important because small axe label's first recording was small axe. Mm-hmm. And small axe is a song, is one of the cleverest songs ever written by Bob Marley. Because what small axe is all about, and people don't realize it, small axe is about the big three. If you are a big tree, I'm a small axe ready to cut you <laughs> down. But yes. what he was doing is using a pun. In other yes. words, he knew that people were going to hear a big tree. Big tree, rather. So, sorry, right. as but, in the plant. Patois, Patois right? same thing. But he's also referring to the big three, which is Duke, yes. Reed, Cox, and, and Dynamics. And he's promising them that them going to chop them down, in other words, even where they make money more than the big tree can make. Which and so said. Ironic- <laughs> well, ironically, it didn't happen at the time, but it proved right. to be 100% prophetic eventually. <laughs> and you see, the importance of that in the other sense is it shows you have to have historical context in order to understand certain songs or you miss the boat totally mm-hmm. for me israelites um which was of, which which was of course a massive massive hit, hit for desmond decker right for right. me israelites was a hit by accident in other words what happened was it happened to be released at the same time or i think it was a six-day war 
um, between between Israel and 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 you know all of the Arabs Arab nations that run and about, right? right, including Egypt, and the American Jews and Jews in general thought that for me Israelite was a political song that was defending Israel in its in its role against. Um, all these Middle Eastern nations. Okay. <laughs> you understand? But in actual fact, for me, Israelites was not about that at all. For me, Israelites had nothing whatsoever to do with that. But the timing was just perfect. And as a result, for you, Israelites sold hundreds of thousands of copies. <laughs> oh, right? okay. So, so um, what is it about? Not, not to disrespect the song, you know, the song is a brilliant song. Yes. Right? But it was just a matter of luck and misinterpretation okay. by, by, the, by the Jewish community. So okay. Okay. That worked for them. <laughs> so then <laughs> one, they can smile all the way to the back. Right? <laughs> um, and you've had other things like, I know, small acts. I'm not small acts. Um, um, bad card. Yes. Right? Bad card. A lot of people. Um, don't have a clue what bad card is about. But what bad card is about is that this is in the late 70s. A lot of Bob Marley's neighbors at 56 Hope Road didn't want Bob Marley to be there. They never want a little Rasta boy to be at 56 Hope Road, which was kind of an upper class area, you know, right. and had a certain right. reputation. So they never want any, any little Rasta boy to be there, right? Not realizing, of course, that, that this was an iconic man that would be bigger than all of them for, for, for yes. life and forever. Um, and they used to complain because Bob used to run some 15-hour rehearsals and things up at Tough Girl. Um, right. Not in the studio, but at the outdoor out venue. And they used to complain oh. that Bob was not creating nice pollution, right? Okay. And they wanted Bob to stop, and they brought an injunction against Bob Marley to close down the studio and stop him from from having the capacity to re to rehearse where the, the the noise would disturb them. And Bob's response was to write bad card, right? <laughs> and if you listen. He said, I'm not tired to see my face. Mm -hmm. But them now get me out of the place. <laughs> right? So they're playing a game, but them draw a bad card. Right? And the lines in there, they talk about, like, they're guarding the palace so majestic. They're guarding the palace so realistic. What he's talking yes. about is the lions that are on, that sit atop the, the gateway to the property immediately in front of Tufkan. Which was one of those big um, rental properties, the expensive apartment buildings, oh, and it okay. had the lions sitting on top of the gateway, right? Which was ironic, right? you know. That's a Rasta right. thing. Right? Yes, so, yes. You know, the guard in the palace so majestic, the guard in the palace so realistic, but they are not tired to see my face. Yeah, and you say, I want to, I want to disturb. I want to disturb, disturb my neighbors. My neighbor. <laughs> I'm feeling so right. I'm going to turn up my disco, burning the full wax tonight. 
So that was about being defiant. Okay. Right? Okay. And that's why he wrote the song. And the song in his nose at them because them, them can't even record. Right? Okay. Okay. And, you know, context is always crucially important if you want to get the most out of anything creative. You know, if Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Um, I remember the first time I saw um, Crossings, which was NDTC's most popular dance ever. And Crossings is really about um, the transatlantic trade um, in Africans. So it's it's about the Africans coming over to the New World and then their experiences in, in the New World. Right. And immediately sat down and watched it. There was no narration. There was nothing there telling what you were watching. But every single last person understood every aspect of the story as it unfolded. Because visually, it was just like, this is what is happening. This is what is happening. This is what is happening next. Now they're traveling over from, from Africa to the New World. Now they're there. Now they're facing discrimination. Now it's lynching and, you know, shooting and, and all the rest of it and being treated as third class citizens and, you know, and without any value and racism left, right and center. And you got the full story without any words pointing you towards the thing because the context of the dance is what allowed you to understand the story. And context yeah. is everything in certain situations. So mm -hmm. you have to understand that when a vibes cartel do a song, you have to take the song in the context of where is vibes cartel coming from? What is the culture that vibes cartel live? How is that different from a Euro who was, you know, four generations or four decades earlier? You know, mm -hmm. and, and how does that inform how they would look at the music differently and how the end product would sound different, you know? So, so all of this, all of this, you have to look at if you want to understand things properly. And of right. course, the, the sky went into the dance hall. I mean, sorry, the rock steady. And the famous story about that is the story, um, of Hopeton Loose. But I'm this, wrote um, take it easy take it time mm. take it time take it time no need to worry and the problem was it was written and the band in the studio wanted to record it scat time right so they were saying, take it time take it time take it time no <laughs> need to worry take it easy take it easy take it easy and Wopton couldn't get it right because it was just too fast so eventually, somebody suggests that they, listen, man, let's, let's slow this thing down. Because not working. Mm -hmm. And when they slowed it down and slowed it down, then it became necessary to create a bass pattern because, you know, the, 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 the one-step bass thing that was prominent in ska, you know, wasn't working. You know, the tum, kum, 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 kum type of bass yeah. wouldn't work, wouldn't work when they slowed it down. To that extent, so you created to the doom, 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 right? Which was yeah. what we call a bass line, and and that became take it easy, and 
A lot of people claim that this is the first rock study truth. Other people say that is other science, but you know, you can mm-hmm. never tie these things down totally. Right, right, and right. That's where rock study came into being. But there are no music is without boundaries. So in other words, you can't say that the Jamaican music that was recorded between sixty-four and sixty-nine was rock steady. It don't work right. like that. Because mm. one band, for instance, is beyond all of that classification. The closest thing to a classification that you could put Bam Bam, the original Bam Bam, and with Benaya Bingi. Right. right. That would be the closest thing. But it don't fall under this care category or the rock steady category or any of these other categories. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So, so music is always fluid. And you can always have a hit, which is out of time. In other words, so you, you, you go and you have a, 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 a Bossanova over hit. No, right. <laughs> in the year 2020. Mm. You know, people say, oh, you can't have a Bossanova over hit in 2020, but you can. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so the, the Rocksteady era continued through to about 69. It's very difficult to give an exact date. But about okay. 69, um, the transition happened into a river. Um, and the thing is, Rocksteady never stopped being made in because a, a lot of the reggae artists are still making Rocksteady tunes even to today. Okay. It's under the banner now, the generic banner, reggae. But it's still rock steady music. So you still have rock steady music being made in 2020. They might call it culture music or something, but it's rock steady music. As you find okay. by, by, by the musicians and producers, it's rock steady music. Mm-hmm. And rock steady transitioned into reggae. Right? And the reggae, the reggae, of course, had a different feel from the rock study. People tend to like to say that reggae was created when they speeded up rock study. But my answer to that is always if you slow down um, scat and end up with rock study. If you speed up rock study, you're supposed to end up back with scat. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. And not reggae. <laughs> right? So it's not just a question of, of tempo. It's a little bit more than tempo. It's, a, it's all about accents and, you know, and the one, the one, the one drop, um, drumming and all the rest of it. It's several things, right? right? The way the guitar was played, all of these things we had to create what, what we now call reggae. And of course, this became the heyday for Bob Marley, for a lot of other artists, um, and what they call culture music, or some, or some people including Bob called reggae. Rebel, rebel music, rebel music. Um, all of this took the thing, and this became the the major era of when the music spread globally, because this was when touring became the number one source of income for a lot of Jamaican musicians and bands. Okay. So what had happened is that when Island Records realized that Bob Marley was going to be massive. They came to Jamaica and basically signed every artist that they could possibly sign. And to an extent, it seems that the, the charge that some people make 
that what they were doing is signing the competition for Bob Marley and then shelving, shelving them. them. Mm-hmm. Right. So you sign them and shelf them so they wouldn't be in greater opposition to Bob Marley's growth. But at the same time, a lot of people earn quite good money out of this whole process because they got a chance to tour. It might not have been okay. big tours. It might have been club tours and things, but they got a chance to tour. So people like Burning Spear started touring at that point, you know, culture, um, a whole host of artists, you know, Israel Vibration. And those people kept touring, and some of them still touring today. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, so there was a new potential for earnings for the Jamaican musician. Um, DJs and singers, and that was Tory, which was a 70s to today phenomenon. Well, not today because of COVID, but mm-hmm, right, know? right, right. Yeah, but but and we have tours of different kinds. You know, you have tours where it's small groups, you have tours where it's medium, and you have tours that is um, between um, what I call it stadiums. Usually, stadium tours are associated with some of the big room artists. You know, I remember seeing, and I won't call the name because I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, a Jamaican group, which is a little bit known, not not big popular group, who was on radio talking about um, their performance in Montreal for 180,000 people or whatever it was. Uh, conveniently forgot to mention that they were hired as an opening act for the opening act for the show, um, which featured, guess who? The Rolling Stones. <laughs> ha, ha. So, you know, out of that only 80,000 people, there might have been 20 who came to see the Jamaican group. Right, <laughs> right, right. You understand? So, so we have to be careful about how sometimes we make claims, you know? I will say, but yes, yeah, yes. Man, this, is, this is our success. Because sometimes sometime we're being disingenuous. And sometimes we just lie. <laughs> 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 and nothing don't go so. Right? Mm. I remember a show. I remember a show in um, France. Uh, I worked on that show. So this one I can talk with, with surety. This show was in France. It was a Rita Marley, but the headline for the show. This was just after Bob had died, and, and Rita had one draw and all them things, and right. big international, worldwide hit, and everybody wanted Rita. And the producer put on the show. Um, on the show was Nick and Crazy Johnson. Um, on the show was... Oh, um, Lucky Jube, right? Yes. And a host of other artists who were not big-name artists at the time, but subsequently became big-name artists and were excellent performers. I mean, world-class performers. And there was also Rita Marley and Third World. Right. We went and we were setting up for Rita Marley. And... Third world came along and third world said, Why well, the setup can't work because it can't accommodate, it don't accommodate their thing. Um, 
And so I said, all right, set up, set up the third world. And we will fit in Rita Marley to work with third world setup, which is what we did. And other okay. people accommodated. In other words, third world setup was nailed up. And everybody okay. else accommodated themselves into third world setup. Nobody had a problem so far. And then the promoter said, okay, so this is a lineup for the show. And he gave the lineup. And then Third World and Rita Mali were close. And Third World said, no, that can't work. Third World is the biggest name on the show, so Third World had to close. So, so Rita, Rita said, the promoter said, no way. And Rita said, no, man, it's cool. Third World wanted to close. Yeah, Third World closed. I don't have a problem with that. And it's not going to affect your bottom line because by that time, anybody paying to come in would already be coming anyway. Right. The promoter reluctantly agreed. Everybody come on, everybody perform, everybody mash it, everybody get encores because it was that high level, you know, high level performances. And right, they crowd right, enjoying right. themselves and all the rest of it. And Rita Marley went on and she did a show and she got about three encores and brought in melody makers with Ziggy and Ting to come and do a little surprise performance and they performed and then Rita did another 10, 15 minutes of encore performance and you know got another encore thing and then say, no, I really have to leave now because we've been on stage too long and you know, told her to come. And at the time that all of this was happening, this was in a bullfighting arena, right? People don't know that they are bullfighting arenas in France, but they do. This was in a bullfighting arena. In France, yes, France, yes, yes. Out yes. of France. Yeah. Yeah. And it holds probably um, between, I mean, people were on the floor. I didn't know bulls in there or whatever. Between the stands and the floor and thing, I figure there were probably 50 to 60,000 people okay. in this arena, right? At the time that Rita Mali finished performing. I had to go on the road at that point to help a friend with something. So I came back about 20 minutes later. Yeah. And this is about 10 minutes into Third World's performance, and there were 3,000 people there. What? The people had come to see Rita Marley. And oh, Rita Marley okay. don't perform, and the people go home. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No disrespect to Third World. In other words, Third World show up I stayed and watched all that third world show. It was a great show. Right. But that's not what the people came to see. So okay. once the top bill artists had performed, the people went home. So you have to be careful what you wish for. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. Be careful. But there are numerous occasions where I tell promoters, you need to realign your show order. There are some okay. people that you don't want to go on after. You don't want to go on after Joseph Hill and culture. Well, he's right. dead now, but you know. You don't want to go on after Barrington Levy. There are some artists you don't want to go on after because they will flop you. No matter how mm -hmm. big you are at any given time because these guys perform at an extremely high level. Right? And there are people who do the opposite. You know, there are artists who are one name who because, especially in the Jamaican country, in Jamaica, 
we don't care yeah. what, any, what any US album is. We don't care if you have a number one hit in Germany. What we care about is the song that we love in Jamaica. Exactly, so, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so if you come and we will buy the ticket to see you, we will pay the money to see you, we will wait all night to see you. But if you're not singing the song we want here, we will also stone you off at the stage. Because <laughs> 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 that's how we stay. You understand? Yeah. And you have a set yeah. of artists who, what they will do, they come, they have 10 hit songs, which are beloved by the Jamaican audience. And they yes. will come and, and they sing a medley with nine of those songs in the first 15, 10 minutes of their performance. Right. And then they spend the next 40 minutes doing the, the two, two newest albums that nobody don't know any of the songs from, right? Yeah, and I think CeeLo Green did that. And then they go off stage and expect to be called back for an encore for the one hit song that Jamaicans love that they didn't perform yet. Mm. But what tends to happen is either the people go home while they do the 40 minutes, the people go home and there's nobody there to give them no encore, or the people don't want to see them again. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and one of the worst things that can happen is an MC going out here, do you want to see more? And nobody laughs. I remember there's an artist who performed at a show, right? And I'm not name the artist. And the MC goes after the artist, boarding audience will talk to me. The MC goes out, do you want to see more? And everybody shouts, no. I said, between my boy. Between my artist, for 15 minutes. Oh boy. <laughs> and of course that's most embarrassing, isn't it? Most embarrassing. So, you know. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, but this is great. You have some some really, really cool info in here. And um yeah, thanks, thanks, Alvin. I All appreciate, right. appreciate it. And Michael, no problem. Thank you. Blessings. Mm-hmm.